1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today we'll be talking with Anthony B. Sanders, author of Baby Night Amendments, How Americans Embrace Unenumerable Rights and Why It Matters. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Deidre. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Thank you. I wonder if you could start by Telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: You bet. So, I am uh, an attorney. I work at a, a law firm called the Institute for Justice. We are a nonprofit, public interest, libertarian law firm. Uh, we are, uh, you might think of us as a, a version of the ACLU for, with a more free market bent. And I run a little tiny think tank inside of IJ uh, called the Center for Judicial Engagement. And the book that I wrote, is it lines up with a lot of what we do at IJ, um, our thinking about how we need to protect liberties and we protect them under the U.S. Constitution and also state constitutions. So it's a big, con- big uh, a field that I'll, that I'll talk about more in a moment. But the roots of the project really go back to way before I was uh, an attorney at the Institute for Justice, or even an attorney at all. When I was in law school, and when I was in law school, I uh, was introduced to the concept of state constitutions. So all you know, all Americans know about the U.S. Constitution, and uh, kind of a brief. Uh, idea about what it does, separation of powers, and of course, it protects various liberties. Um, but we never hear, I don't want to say never, never, but we hardly ever hear about state constitutions. But every state has its own constitution. And unless you're talking about the federal government itself, if you're talking about the, the machinations or the working of your state government or your local government, the state constitution is just as relevant as the federal constitution. And so I was introduced to this concept of state constitutions, read a little bit about it and realized that it is a, it's a very, even among lawyers, it is a very uh, underdeveloped area. There certainly are books about state constitutions. There are lots of cases under state constitutions, but it's it's still a pretty quiet area compared to what it, it should be. Now, at the same time, I was interested in civil liberties, uh, what liberties are protected by either the federal or state constitutions. And I uh, thought a lot about, uh, and, and many people think about this, about the idea of unenumerated rights. So maybe I'll quickly explain what, what that means. There are the enumerated rights. So that means the rights that are actually listed in plain English in a constitution. So the most famous, of course, the First Amendment, which has freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, a couple others. And there's various other rights that are that are listed in the US Constitution, and indeed in many state constitutions. But then there's language in constitutions that seems to hint at a broader set of rights and there's a lot of famous cases about rights beyond just those that are listed in the Constitution. And this of course, is often very controversial. Um, abortion, of course, prime example of that. but there are many other rights that aren't listed in the Constitution, but nevertheless it's argued are um, protected as even though they're not specifically listed. So I was interested in this idea and um, the most famous, kind of uh, wording that talks about unenumerated rights, or at least people argue protects unenumerated rights, is the Ninth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And I'll just, uh, because I think its wording is very important, we'll probably talk about it a little later, Uh, just state it now. It says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people and there have been oceans of ink spilled about what that means, but primarily by scholars and, and lawyers, not really by judges. The U.S. Supreme Court has never known what to do with the Ninth Amendment. It's hardly said anything about it. What I noticed was that this language is in a number of state constitutions. Well, that's interesting. And a few people have written about it, but not, not all in that much detail. And I saw that there's this long story of states putting this language in state constitutions. And although it unfortunately has been largely ignored, this language, some state courts have actually gotten into what it means and there have been cases about it protecting people's liberties. And I thought, wow, that looks like an interesting subject. Um, And many years later, in a couple law review articles along the way, uh, I was in a position a few years ago to really put pen to paper and put it together as a book. And uh, and that's how the book came about.
1: Now, you gave us the example of Jane. Can you tell the audience her story and why and how it's connected with the baby night?
0: Yes. Great. So this is how I I open the book is to take a hypothetical, which lawyers love to do. Uh, And the hypothetical here is just an average American who I call Jane. And we think, just think about, you can think about Jane or you think about yourself, what you do in a day. So what activities do you get up to in a day? Well, Jane, she gets up, she gets up at the hour she thinks is best for her. Uh, She chooses what to eat for breakfast. She might have a child. And gets that child off to school. And it might even be a school that she picked that she thought was best for her child. She probably goes to work and it may be a job that she picked over other options, or it might be a career that she picked over other paths in life she could have taken. She does other more mundane things like walks the dog, Um, maybe plays a game with friends in the evening, or does just other facets of daily life that you know, usually we don't think too hard about. And then I come up with the idea of, well, what if the state legislature where Jane lives passed a law that restricted one of these activities? So it could be something as, uh, as big as like made her job much harder legally for her to engage in. Um, you know, say there was a new licensing law that she didn't have the qualifications for. She thought it didn't make any sense that she couldn't work this job anymore, even though she didn't have this um, this license, but uh, some law like that. Or maybe it was something pretty fundamental to what she thought about herself. Maybe there was a, a certain kind of um, food that she enjoys or that she thinks is good for her, but that isn't restricted now, or there's it's harder for her to get, or maybe it's just something silly, right? There's uh, there's some, a hobby she's a, she engages in and it's, it's much harder for her to, uh, to do it now. Maybe she's a gardener and all of a sudden she can't garden in the way she, she used to do. And so she's outraged, whatever this restriction is, she's outraged. And she, she says, you know what, this is so outrageous. It violates my rights. And she's just an average American, you know, hear about what your rights are, how they've been violated. You never think about it all that much. So she, she goes to her state and federal constitutions and she looks through the list of the rights that they have. So you see freedom of speech, religion, unreasonable searches and seizures, cruel, unusual punishment, all that stuff. But it doesn't really pertain to how her rights have been restricted. And so then... She's like, oh, well, why didn't they list this liberty? It's important to me. You'd think they, when they put the Constitution together, they would have also put it in there, but they didn't. And then she gets down to the end um, of the Bill of Rights, and she sees that language that I read to you a little earlier. The enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And she says, this is it. This protects my right. Because really what it's saying is there's a bunch of rights and then et cetera, et cetera. There are others that are also protected. And so the book is exploring how Americans have actually done just that over the course of our history. We have come up with this invention. I think it's a, in a way it was a new technology that Americans came up with, which is To list a bunch of rights, but realize that we can't list every right of everything that might come up. And yet, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know how government might restrict civil liberties. And so you essentially put et cetera, et cetera at the end of the Bill of Rights. And is that right? And how did it happen is what the rest of the book is about.
1: Now, you talk about the courts. Have the courts protected the baby knights?
0: Uh, mostly not, but some they have. And I think where they have, it shows us how things could be different. Um, so the this language from the Ninth Amendment, as I said, it's really never been interpreted in a big way by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has protected at times different unenumerated rights Uh, for a time about a hundred years ago, it was protecting more economic rights, like the right to earn a living. Then that went out of favor, Uh, but then it started protecting more personal liberties at times. And of course we've just gone through an episode where it protected the right to an abortion for a while. And then it, and it said, it's not protected anymore, but still we, we, it's been interpreted to protect other personal liberties, like the right to raise children. Is uh, is is considered on all sides to be an unenumerated right that's protected by the Constitution, but it hasn't done this with the language you'd think it would use. It's done it with uh, the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution, which on its face doesn't seem to be as useful to protecting unenumerated rights as other provisions. And yet, in the state constitutions, there's all kinds of different language. Uh, there's due process clauses, but there's also these baby ninth amendments. Um, and there's uh, other language that that I uh, could get to in a little bit that also protects unenumerated rights, or at least arguably does. And so unfortunately, when the concept, the idea of rights beyond just those listed in constitution has come up in state courts, often states have followed what the federal courts have done. Um, they've uh, said, you know, most rights aren't protected. There's a very low level of protection. Government gets a huge deal of deference, even when it seems to not make any sense how it's restricting civil liberties. And yet uh, sometimes they do protect uh, rights at a, a bit of a higher level. And um, that that sometimes has been with Baby Ninth Amendments, as I, I call them. I should, uh, by the way, say I didn't come up with the idea, the, the name Baby Ninth Amendments, but I, re- I really like it uh, as, a, as a, a state equivalent. Um, often laws that are kind of mirrored in the states that are at the federal level are called baby, you know, whatever. And I think I really like the the name Baby Ninths. Um, so I'll give you an example of how this has actually happened with uh, judges in at the state level and how it shows that it could happen more. So one case I talk about in the book is what um, actually took place in Minnesota, the state where I live. And it was in the depression. And there was a family that for uh, odd bureaucratic reasons, the county said couldn't live where they were living. It was actually their own home. They owned it free and clear. But for, uh, for reasons of have they, they had been on relief and there was there was some red tape involved, they said, you have to move to the next town, to a different, your relatives in the next town. And they said, we're not moving. And so the county came and took the family and their possessions out of the house forcibly in the middle of the winter, and and this is Minnesota, and put them in the next, uh, threw them at the next town, essentially. Now... You might say that that violates various constitutional liberties. Uh, Today, a savvy civil rights lawyer would probably say it's a Fourth Amendment violation. It's an unreasonable seizure. But the Minnesota Supreme Court, when they ruled on this case later, because the family sued for damages, said, you know what? The language in the Minnesota Constitution that says there's there's enumeration in the Constitution, so I'll be construed to deny these other rights. Another right that we all Understand is important is the right to establish a home. You when you own your own property, you live in your home with your family, you have established something that the government can't unreasonably take away. And that's exactly what happened here because they were the, the county was following this rule that didn't make any sense. They threw they took the family out of their own home and it violated that right. And so therefore the family was allowed to sue for damages. Um, because of that violation. That is, I think it's because that case was so outrageous that the court felt it could do that. But too many other cases, courts have shied away from uh, protecting rights that are retained by the people, uh, but they are not specifically enumerated. I'll give you one other example I I talk about in the book, uh, which was actually litigated uh, while I've been at the Institute for Justice by some colleagues of mine. So we represented a family in um, Miami Beach, Florida, of all places, who had a vegetable garden. Uh, Hermione Ricketts, uh, the the wife of the couple, she spent all this time on this beautiful vegetable garden. The problem was it was in her front yard. So I guess it, for their particular property, it didn't work to grow it in the backyard uh, I think there was too much shade or something like that. So she grew it in the front yard. And for years, it went by without incident. It had you know, beautiful, like kind of artfully done stocks of kale and zucchini and, and that kind of thing. But the city had this ordinance that you can't grow vegetables in your front yard. You could grow flowers. You could even grow fruit, but you couldn't grow vegetables. And so someone complained at some point and the city said, you, you got to tear the garden out. And we thought this was absolutely outrageous. So we went to court uh, on her behalf and, and her husband's behalf and said, you know what? This violates the Florida Constitution. And Florida has one of these baby Ninth Amendments. And we used various provisions of the Constitution and said, look, there's just a basic right to grow your own food to use your own property. She wasn't even growing this and selling it to anyone. She was just growing it for the family. Um, and the court said, you know what? It's not written in the constitution. And so it gets the lowest level of protection possible. And if the government has anything that maybe sounds like it might make sense, we're going to say it's fine. And they said the government had a rational distinction between uh, growing stuff that's food and growing stuff that's not food, and it's fine. And so we lost. Uh, they, they, they lost that case. Uh, I think that's a clear abdication of a judge's duty to interpret and enforce the Constitution. And the Constitution says right there, as plain as day, that there's other rights, and you can't deny or disparage them just because they're not enumerated. Um, so judges should be more like those ones in Minnesota during the depression and less like those ones in Florida.
1: Now you give us examples of the food trucks in Florida and Chicago. Can you tell the audience what happened there?
0: Yeah. Um, so that, a, a, again, another case uh, ended in a little happier in Florida is we have had a number of uh, cases about uh, food trucks. So often we represent um, entrepreneurs who are just trying to earn a living and um, usually very small businesses who are thrown up against laws that don't make any sense. And there was uh, a food truck uh, owner who, uh, Benny Diaz was his name, who had a food truck in Fort Pierce, Florida. So this is kind of uh, a little up the coast from, uh, from Miami and kind of a Fort Lauderdale area. And I, uh, at a, at a food truck, uh, people you know uh, came, bought his, um, uh, uh, bought what he would cook. He was he was doing okay and the city uh, with pressure from the restaurant owners passed a law that said uh, that, that was very restrictive of where a food truck could park. And it wasn't just parking on the street. it was just within so uh, so far of any restaurant. So it was transparently anti-competitive. Now you may think you know food trucks cause problems when they they park on the street or maybe park where uh, where they they shouldn't, and um, or they they leave trash around or whatever. Um, those are all legitimate concerns that you can legislate, right? Cities can legislate that. But this law was transparently not about any of that stuff. It was just about preventing competition, and preventing competition just isn't. An interest the government should have if there's no other reason. And there really was no other reason here. So we went to court and said that violates Benny's right to earn a living. And the court ruled in a preliminary uh, ruling, ruled that that was was true. And it prevented the city from enforcing the ordinance, which later on uh, the, the city repealed. So that's one Case where a where a court steps in and enforces an unenumerated liberty. Now we have the same story in Chicago, so much bigger right uh, jurisdiction than Fort Pierce, Florida, and in Chicago, Illinois, a uh, number of years ago they had uh, the city adopted an ordinance that it had a no- number of, of parts to it, but one was this anti-competitive. Um, uh, uh, distance. So it, it was uh, within 150 feet of a restaurant. Now, that actually doesn't sound like all that much, right? 150 feet. Well, if you're talking about urban Chicago, um, right in the loop, if, if for those of you who've been there, I lived there for a while. Uh, that's basically everywhere uh, within 150 feet of anywhere that sells food. So you couldn't, you effectively could not park a food truck in the loop in Chicago, right where all the, the business activity is. So similar challenge. Illinois has a provision that protects unenumerated rights. Uh, the, the the baby ninth amendment in Illinois. Uh, it has other provisions that over the years have been interpreted to protect unenumerated rights. And so we said, you know, same idea here. This is uh, anti-competitive and is pre- preventing our clients from operating. we, we, uh, represented a couple food trucks, one of which was a woman who sold cupcakes. And uh, she put some of the proceeds away to cancer research because she started the cupcake van when her sister had cancer. The case went all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. We were very hopeful when the Illinois Supreme Court took the case. There was some precedent on our side for protecting this right. And yet the court ruled that it's unenumerated. It's not uh, protected at any kind of uh, high level of scrutiny, as this lawyers call it. And so, therefore, the city's reason that it was just trying to balance the interests of restaurants and other entrepreneurs, even though that's not really an appropriate use of state power, uh, was okay. And so the law was constitutional. So, there you can see how courts came to very different uh, outcomes about the protection of unenumerated rights. But interestingly, neither of those cases involved baby Ninth Amendments themselves. They involved the the idea of unenumerated rights. And what my book is trying to do is to say, you know, we all understand that unenumerated rights are this controversial idea that a lot of people are afraid of. Some people think, well, they're okay, but, you know, they're kind of made up. So we should we should not enforce them at two. Uh, too strongly. And my point is, actually, they're in our constitutions. It is enumerated in our constitutions that there are unenumerated rights. And if we take that seriously, we're going to have a lot more outcomes um, like uh, food trucks in Fort Pierce, Florida, and less like in Chicago.
1: Now, you went on to talk about baby 10th, and you gave us example of Dr. Bonham's case. Tell us about
0: that. Yeah. So this is some, okay. So this is some deep history for the, the listeners we'll go back to the, so it's important to remember in thinking about why we have unenumerated rights protections in American constitutions. It's important to kind of go back to first principles and the history about why we have constitutions in the first place. So, we come out, of course. American constitutionalism comes out of the British system and uh, and the and the history of um, uh, the old system that is still in effect in the UK about the British Parliament and the Crown, and essentially the sovereign is the King in Parliament. What Parliament does, as long as it gets royal assent, which it always does these days, um, is the law. There is no higher law. Above that, because Parliament itself is sovereign. Now, that was basically accepted in um, in British history, but there's a few uh, hints of, of kind of an idea of, of a more you know higher level constitutionalism. And one is this case that that it, legal scholars will will recognize called Doctor Bonham's case, uh, where there was uh, a doctor in um, in London who wasn't properly accredited. And so he was prosecuted and he went to court and uh, Lord Cook, um, the famous judge of the time, and also uh, had many other hats as well, uh, said that um, that this was beyond uh, what the, uh, what the city of London had the power to do, but also hinted that sometimes there are things that just go beyond Parliament itself uh, the power of Parliament itself when they're beyond natural right and reason as he put it so that that kind of you might say planted a seed as the idea of a higher law a higher constitutionalism well when we have the American Revolution and states start writing their own constitutions at first they were just writing constitutions because you know the British crown no longer had the author- had authority over them so they argued and so they had to come up with their own organization of government but along the way uh, it quickly the the idea quickly took hold that constitutions state constitutions were a higher law above whatever the legislature was going to pass and that's because the idea of sovereignty shifted from parliament and the crown to the people so when you have this higher law, the, the Constitution, you're, at this point, just state constitutions, uh, and then you have an act of the legislature, and the act of the legislature violates what the Constitution says, right, goes, goes against what it says. What do you do? Um, and it was pretty apparent that you, you should go with the higher law. It's, it's the, the, the people, after all, and the legislature is not considered at the, at the same level. And so that's where the idea of judicial review comes from. And, um, you know, sometimes you hear arguments that judicial review didn't come around till later that Marbury versus Madison, this famous case from 1803 is where it really was established, but, uh, it was already a thing by then. Um, and when you have this level of higher law and, uh, above the legislature, judicial review in my view is, was inevitable. It was going to happen. And indeed did happen pretty, pretty quickly. Um, that not to say it wasn't somewhat controversial. Now this idea of sovereignty then comes to the U S constitution and we have the famous story of 1787 in Philadelphia, uh, drafting the U S constitution. It's then ratified. Uh, and yet we have also, um, the bill of rights that comes just after that because states wanted to put some brakes on, on federal power. And so, um, there we have the idea of enumerated powers. So uh, the framers of the Constitution were worried about giving too much powers to the federal government. They wanted to give some power though, and so uh, the idea comes that there's there are certain powers the federal government has, but they're enumerated, not beyond, or not much beyond those powers. Whether that worked out in the long run is a, is a different story. But that that's the that's the idea, right? And one of the amendments to the U.S. Constitution in this in the Bill of Rights, we talked about the Ninth Amendment, but there's also the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment essentially says that the, the powers that aren't given, it's just a reminder, the powers that aren't given by the people of the states to the United States remain with the states or with the people. So that, that kind of makes sense when you're talking about enumerated powers. What about the states, though? How does their power work? And so in, um, in Pennsylvania, they had a constitutional convention just after this, uh, just after the Bill of Rights was drafted, not even ratified, in late 1789. And with these ideas in the air, they did something interesting. They put a provision in the Pennsylvania Constitution that said, we recognize that the state is getting broad powers delegated from the people. So here we have the idea of delegation, uh, kind of you know that might uh, comes out of theorists such as John Locke of a social contract of delegation from the people to the state, but it's not enumerated like in the in the federal constitution. It's kind of an unenumerated power. That sounds a little scary, unenumerated power. And so they they also have a bill of rights though, the Declaration of Rights of Pennsylvania, and they say okay these high powers are delegated to the state, but because of the transgressions, that's a word they use that that could uh that those powers could enable the government to use, we accept power out of what's in the Bill of Rights. So here the idea is you have a or declaration of rights, as they call them in Pennsylvania, you have a list of rights, and that of course bars the government from violating those rights. But you even have more than that. You have the 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 government doesn't have that power in the first place. And so this, uh, you have the the contrast between enumerated, unenumerated powers, I should say, but not all powers because then you pull back what the rights are. So that's what I call a baby 10th because it seems to be inspired by the 10th Amendment. So these baby tenths then get adopted in a number of different states over the next few years. So, this is from 1789 um, and the next couple decades. But we don't see examples of the Ninth Amendment. And I think this is just an example of how it was taking a little while for Americans to kind of get the balance of rights and powers at the state level, in addition to the federal level. But then that changes in 1819, um, when a couple states take a look at the Ninth Amendment.
1: Now, you also um, did a historical um, part of research looking at state conventions. What were some of the interesting aspects of those floor debates that you found?
0: Yeah. So um, as as we were just uh, talking before we started recording, um, this is a project that I think is, it, it, for, for those listening who are into uh, hi- historical uh, research constitutional uh, history. Um, the amazing thing about our age is that so much of this, I was able to do online, even though it was old books that you know few people have looked at in, in a long time. Um, there, A lot of them are records of constitutional conventions. So most times in U.S. history, when a new state constitution has been adopted, whether a new state or a state getting an a second or a third constitution. Uh, It's at a constitutional convention and states have really varied at what uh, they have uh, kept from those conventions. Some didn't even have a transcript of what happened uh, in the floor debates, quite a few actually. Um, Some just have a journal so you can see what motions were passed and when they were piecing together the constitution, but not really much more than that. Some though will have a full transcript of the debates. Uh, there's hardly ever committee materials until very modern times, unfortunately. But um, the the transcripts of the committee debate of, of the floor debates can can tell us a lot. So as I was saying, the eighteen nineteen is when we first get an example of the Ninth Amendment language being used in a state constitution, and it's actually used in Alabama in eighteen nineteen where uh, this is their their first constitution. They have this language I was talking about, the baby 10th language from Pennsylvania, but then they pair it with the Ninth Amendment language. And so you have uh, this statement about rights retained by the people and then about uh, transgressions and uh, unenumerated powers and how the Bill of Rights is accepted out of those powers. So for the first time you have the idea of unenumerated powers and unenumerated rights put against each other. Uh, Later that same year, Maine has a constitutional convention. This is when the state of Maine was birthed out of Massachusetts. And they also put ninth amendment language in them, but not, um, not this baby 10th language. So it's just like a, a baby, just the ninth amendment at the end of the Maine bill of rights still there today. So, Uh, Over the years, a few other states here and there start adopting Ninth Amendment uh, language, although it's a little bit slow at first. But by the time of the Civil War, on the eve of the Civil War, a dozen states actually have adopted um, baby knights. Now, a few of these had enough of these records that I was able to to look at them. So um, I talk about uh, debates at the uh, California Convention. Um, the maryland that that's in uh, 1849 the maryland convention of i think it's 1851 and uh and a couple others and the delegates are debating you know uh all kinds of parts of the constitution and often they won't say anything about uh, a provision because the committee approved it and no one is you know really worried about it and so it gets through so unfortunately we don't get kind of get their thoughts on it but we do in these couple cases about um, the baby knights. And the interesting thing is the debate about whether to put this provision that, you know, my read of it and many other people's read of it is that it protects rights not enumerated in the constitution, right? Today, if you said that, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people both on the right and the left would say, oh, we can't have that, right? You're going to have judges making up rights and thwarting democracy or or what have you. But at the time the debate was do we even need this language to protect those rights? Because a couple a couple of these delegates said look everybody knows that the government can't violate those rights even if they're not in the bill of rights. It's just it's not a power that we're giving to the government. And then that the response was well you might be right about that but just in case, I'd rather the language be in there. And uh, one particular fellow in, um, in Maryland uh, was very interesting. He, 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 he's the reason that Maryland now has a baby Ninth Amendment. And he, uh, Delegate Park, I think his name was. And he proposed the baby Ninth Amendment, uh, the, the language of the Ninth Amendment. And someone says, well, what rights does this cover? Or how many rights are covered? And he goes, well, these rights are very numerous just like the rights that Jane exercised. we talked about earlier. Uh, you can't you can't list them all. they there's they're just all you know, these important liberties that we have. And then the pushback was, oh, we don't need that. Those are going to be protected anyway. And it was a close vote, but it it made it in. And there were some similar debates to that in other in other states. So from that from that, I think that you know, I think primarily we interpret a constitution from, what the language meant when it was adopted, uh, but uh, and by the way, I think the language in the Ninth Amendment hasn't the meaning hasn't changed all that much over the course of American history. So, you know, the whole originalism debate—I I don't know if it makes a big difference um, to to uh, this current current interpretation. But in any case, um, the uh, the language of um, Uh, of this time, what's said about it can still give us, you know, hints as to what, uh, how it was thought to function. And it seems like it, people accepted that it would protect rights beyond just those enumerated in the constitution, that it wasn't just, you know, maybe some, some fluff we added on at the end or, or had some other, uh, meaning. And so I also look at some debates after the Civil War. Uh, there uh, we can talk about a moment, more states, you know, added provisions after the Civil War as well on into the 20th century. Um, and over and over again, where, where there are examples, it seems that people had a similar read of why we have this language is because we can't list all the rights. Uh, there's an infinite number of rights when you really think about it. But we want to we want to still protect rights beyond the those that are enumerated, and so a kind of a compromise is to have this et cetera clause, um, as I call it.
1: Well, what is the message you want the reader to leave with once they finish reading your book?
0: Two things. So some readers will I think come to my book with uh, with maybe a legal background, and they will they will want to know how should we interpret these provisions in constitu- in state constitutions and um, what should judges do about it. And there, my argument is they should see that these provisions protect rights beyond just those enumerated in the constitution. They protect them at a real level of scrutiny. So um, there isn't, Rubber stamp, like the, the court in Illinois with the Chicago food trucks that I was talking about, that there is a real level of protection. And that for where that level of protection is, I don't exactly lay out where it should be, but it should be comparable to the level of protection that we recognize enumerated rights get. I mean, it says it right there in, in the Ninth Amendment or in the Baby Nights. Um, it should not deny or disparage. Others retained by the people. Um, so that is the and judges should interpret that. Um, now that does not mean, by the way, that um, they're that judges should interpret these to you know shut down all government uh, and say anything but the barest of rights that are that are uh, given up to the state um, are uh, are protected. That's not the message at all. But the message is that we have to take those rights seriously. So in the in the Ninth Amendment, or in the, the baby Ninth Amendments as well, it says rights retained by the people. That retain means that the, the, the writers are assuming a social contract. So listeners probably know about the idea of a social contract, and you know, theorists like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes wrote about this. It's not an actual thing that really happened, a social contract that we came out of the state of nature and created a government, but uh, it's a useful thought experiment. And it's a thought experiment that the drafters of these constitutions took seriously. Otherwise, they wouldn't use this language. So retained by the people means we give up some rights to the government. The state government then has those powers uh, and it can do a number of things with those powers. It can protect public health. It can protect public safety. It can pass all manner of of different kinds of laws, but it has to do it in a way that respects what we retain and is reasonable. So if it's something that we wouldn't have given up in the first place, that should be a red flag that there's a problem here, such as um, protecting businesses from competition Purely for the sake of protecting them, that I talked about earlier, that would be one example. Or uh, regulating your use of your 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 property purely for aesthetic purposes when it means you can't even grow your own food, as in the case of Hermione Ricketts in in um, uh, Miami Beach, Florida. So that's how I think the 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 lawyer readers should uh, should take this. Now the broader message that I think all readers should should take from the book, and that really I, I uh, bring out in the afterword, that, that's at the end of, of the book, is that, um, that the fact that all these provisions were adopted over the course of American history, 33 states today have a baby Ninth Amendment, coupled with other provisions that I don't talk about much in the book, but I talk about a little bit, other provisions in state constitutions that also protect unenumerated rights or broadly protect rights. Like a lot of states have a right to pursue happiness. That's that's pretty broad. That's basically an unenumerated rights clause. Um, the fact that all of these are in state constitutions show that unenumerated rights are popular. They're not this thing that should be shunned and you know kept in a lockbox like the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it seems to be treating them these days. They're part of our constitutional order, and that seems that um, Americans, when they get together to write constitutions, there's um, there's a compromise that we know the government could be used for good or for ill, but we're always suspicious of it. And so we have all these protections and constitutions such as separation of powers and, and, and other, um, other balancing acts. But one of those balancing acts also is to have a broad protection of rights. I, I think really a, a telling fact that I didn't really think about until I, I finished the book and I have in the afterward is that there is no example that I've ever seen in an American constitution where they say something like, here are your rights and that's all you get. There are or there are no unenumerated rights in this constitution. No one ever says that because we like erring on the side of protection of rights, not erring on the side of the government having power. As important as we think some aspects of government power and protecting public safety or, or what have you are. And so... That is a, that's an interesting way, I think, of thinking about state constitutions, but it's also a way that we can think about the U.S. Constitution. So I try to stay neutral in this book about what the Ninth Amendment itself actually means. Um, there's an argument that it's really about federalism or it's about how to interpret the U.S. Constitution it, itself. It's not actually about protecting rights. I think all those arguments fall apart when we look at state constitutions. But I, I don't go into that kind of I take sides on that debate for the book. But when you just think about interpreting the U.S. Constitution, both the amendments and the original, um, you should do it with an open mind that this was written, especially the amendments, by, a, by people who at the same time were continuously writing and rewriting their state constitutions so as to protect rights beyond just those enumerated. So it's not at all crazy that they would write the US Constitution also to broadly protect rights beyond just those that that are listed. And um, that doesn't mean we should interpret the US Constitution one way or another, but it means that we should keep an open mind that that may be how it's structured and what it protects. And I I hope if nothing else, People will take the story of the Baby Nights to just understand that um, unenumerated rights are popular, uh, whatever your Constitution itself happens to say.
1: Again, we've been talking with Anthony Anthony B. Sanders, the author of Baby Night Amendments, How Americans Embrace Unenumerated Rights and Why It Matters. Thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you, Deirdre. This has been great.